This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. The Prime Minister was wrapping up with the 13 premiers. Um, they're, they're supposed to say they didn't get everything they wanted here. They, they're supposed to indicate a level of disappointment. But I think the conversation is what I take away more than the cost of funding. Okay. Obviously, there'd be wants that there'd be wants and needs that premiers aren't going to get. Hey, I don't even think the system is great that the provinces has to be have to be desperate for very good reason. They're desperate and go to the federal government hat in hand. There's something a little bit messed up with all our systems, and I don't see it in, in many of these other developed countries where cities have to go to the province or the state and the province has to go to the federal government and so on and so forth. And the federal government kind of plays kingmaker, queenmaker, whatever you prefer with all of the funding, because they are the ones that control the purse. They're the only ones that can print money. And they're the ones that can control the greatest amount of the purse strings. It's all, it doesn't mean that much to me, the amount, like the amount matters to me, but thinking about what you would do with it, I don't have any idea. The premiers wanted $300 billion in spending over the next 10 years. They'll get about $190 billion instead. Now, I was thinking about this driving in. How do you even, could you even put an amount per person on what the federal government pays for health care? And I don't think you can. There's 15 million people here in Ontario, for example, closer to 16 million eventually within the next year or two. There's only 156,000 people that live on Prince Edward Island. So you might think, Okay, so $100 of spending in Ontario for every $1 in Prince Edward Island. But I would make the case and I would make the strong argument that depending on how spread out you are, Ontario is much, much more spread out than Prince Edward Island. And depending on your amount of big cities where I think there's more need for healthcare dollar per person than there are for people who don't live in big cities. Okay, Um, there's the lifestyle, there's transit, there's potential obviously more for accidents of some sort people are walking further to go to work um they're commuting so they're not quite as much in uh, in charlottetown they aren't and they're not quite as much in fredericton in uh, in new brunswick they're not or nova scotia to say so it's one of those scenarios where i i don't know that i look and i go the, the the dollars can even be divided that equally i don't know that they can bottom lining this conversations are starting to happen Doug Ford noted yesterday after the meeting that he hopes this is just the very start of important conversations, and they're not just about dollars and cents. Let's see, uh, once we all absorb it, we go back back home and and uh, we'll have questions. And and the the prime minister is very open. They're there to answer the questions and we're going to have a lot of questions uh, moving forward. Ontario just doesn't have um, a lot of boxes that are checked that are that are positive here. More immigration, aging population, less kids being born per family to enter the workplace and to pay into a system that takes care of us. We're paying into the system right now. If we if we say let's let's play this game and let's say me, you, a lot of other people are in the primes of our career. Maybe we think we're in the prime of our earning power or if we aren't right now, we were a few years ago. We're maxing into the system. We're not getting much back for it yet. That's supposed to come later. Well, there's going to be fewer of us to take care of the us. That's us. That's going to be aging 15 to 20 years from now. And we already know this. Like these are rankings. They're not opinion pieces. They're rankings based on data. We stink at the delivery of service. 
We stink at hospital beds per population, ICU beds per population, doctors per population, uh, nurses. Okay, nurses are disgruntled. Nurses are very well paid compared to other Western economies. They are, but I get it that they're fed up and fired up, and the work uh, the work doesn't meet, meet the, uh, the the ends don't justify the means at a certain point in time. So we're short healthcare workers. All of those things are true, and I'm going to say it again, and I think it's worth bearing out the goal is to look to europe and see what those countries are doing right not south of the border to the united states we can't access any private health care we can't access any level of choice and so I, I think this is a really interesting concept i heard it brought up yesterday on john oakley's show it, like delay is almost denial if you have a finite time to get something right with your body uh, uh whether it's your heart whether it's your shoulder, whether it's your hip, whether it's your knee, delay is deny. You, you, you don't get it in time. Your quality of life suffers, and it may suffer for years after that if you continue to get worse. You all know if you don't take care of an injury of some sort, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Those rankings, by the way, um, 25th to 26th in acute care beds per 1,000 population, 26 OECD countries. Again, we're lousy at this. 21st of 24 in MRI scanners. And we forget in Toronto, in the GTA, you probably can get an MRI close by. It, think about all the places in Canada where you can. So there shouldn't be any sort of conversation that is, is too much to handle, is too touchy a subject, is too much of the proverbial third rail. There's no conversations we shouldn't be having about healthcare. We should be having all of them and deciding what works for us at the end of the day. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're very pleased to have uh, our next guest on. He is an Academy Award-nominated director, uh, and that was for Hardwood back. We're talking more than a decade ago, but a brilliant new film called Black Ice. It debuted at TIFF, and most people saw it over the weekend on Crave, and we're very, very happy to have him on. He is Hubert Davis. Hubert, it's Greg Brady. Thanks very much for making the time to come on with us. Hi, Hubert. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for getting up early for us, man. I appreciate it. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, this is really something. Um, it's not just I said the, the film looks great, but a lot of people can make a great looking film. The aesthetics, the music, some of the imagery, the skating on the frozen ponds, outdoors in the mountains. But I think your message grabs people and pulls them in. Um, I, I think we're willing to give films time to sort of heat up um but you get us into this i think within the first two or three minutes with some of the uh, some of the uncomfortable anecdotes that many of your subjects share in in the early parts of the movie yeah i mean we really you know designed the film so that it would be accessible for people to um just understand the, the love for hockey you know like how deeply it runs you know in this in this country and then obviously for, for our subjects for the people in the film um, you know, they, they love it so much that, uh, you know, when you start to hear some of the things that they're up against and they're facing, you realize why they would go through it because um, they love that community and want to be part of that community so badly. So it's, it's in a lot of ways, we try to make it like a, a love letter to hockey, you know? Yeah, it, it feels that way. I'm sure you, but I, I, you'd be clearly conscious of the idea that for everybody that pushed through some of the abuse and the struggle and the, nobody looks like me process, there were probably kids that, that just couldn't make it, that, that could only tolerate it so long. And that's, that's the tragedy of, of kind of, I guess what I'd call the industry of hockey right now is I think it's pushed a lot of people to the curb because it hasn't accepted them. 
Yeah, you're you're 100 percent right. Like we're we're telling stories of people who have been successful in that realm. Who mm. you know, a lot of them played at the highest level, played in the NHL, or uh, you know, gone to the Olympics. All these things. Um, but there is a certain with those people that I talk to. There's a certain mindset, right, with this idea that they were going to achieve no matter what. But you you're exactly right. How many of those stories were of kids who? walked away, you know, and we also started to meet those people as we went along our journey that, you know, had a love for it or their family had love for it and didn't feel accepted. So they, you know, kind of moved on from it. And, and there's, there's a sadness in that for sure of, of all the, all the stories and people that um, just never saw themselves in, in the game, even, even though they had love for it. Hubert Davis is our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Were you able to isolate from all the all the interviews, from all the narration, from all the things you left in, from all the things that, that you had to cut from the film? Um, did you come up with one concept as to why this has been so difficult for so long um, for black players to, to just feel that acceptance? God, I think the one thing that I learned is when you have to, when you look at issues like this, like uh, issues like racism, if you don't look at, at it um, systemically, and by that I mean like all of it's all of these things, you know, it's the the economics, it's you know how people see themselves, the, the power structure, you know, there there's so much the cumulative um, effect, and I think that's the hardest thing for people to understand is if it was just one thing, then you'd go, oh, that's that's mm-hmm. it. But it's this systemic part of it that is harder to see because it's how all those things add up. And then you keep seeing the same result because of that. And I think it's something to do with the sport. I think we've seen basketball go far more um, global than we ever could have foreseen in 20 years ago. I think we we've certainly seen it with baseball. Um, there's just been something with hockey. And so. Um, the, the, the plight of the black hockey player has been present for a long, long time. I, I've always been conscious of it, but I'd make the point that the, the Muslim community with Nas, Nazim Kadri last year with the abuse he's getting, gay hockey players will say, you don't understand. This is really, really difficult. Whereas an NFL player came out two years ago and put an Instagram post on and it was like he was just telling you what he had for lunch. Like it was just one of the most normal things. And hockey just seems to have higher walls to climb over, doesn't it? Yeah, I think inherently because um, how hockey is different, it is a closed uh, community in that, you know, it's just always been that way where, you know, I mean, one very obviously is, is, is the money and the economics and it's gotten very expensive, you know, for anyone uh, to play. But then there's also the idea of, you know, you know, you need to know how to skate at a young age. You, know, you need to, uh, ice time. You need. So there's almost like um, this kind of, you know, the, a lot of the players refer to it as an old boys club that seems to kind of um, control those spaces a lot of times. And and, there, and, be, and so it's harder because there's maybe a little less um, accountability and transparency in some of those places. So it's harder for change if people who are in positions of power really don't want there to be change. And I think that's, that's a big problem. The movie is called Black Ice. We're talking to the director of it, Hubert Davis, on Toronto Today. I was saying yesterday on the show, and I certainly said it to my wife as we were watching it Sunday night, it, it doesn't, your documentary is a different documentary without the presence of Akeem Aliou. Like, you, it, he, 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 he tilts the narrative in a certain way 
and in a very compelling way at that. Ex- explain some of what you found out about Akeem and why his importance and his presence and him agreeing to, to really go deep on his story was important to the movie. Yeah, I think Akeem is really a disruptor in, in the hockey space, right? Because mm-hmm. he's one of the, the few, um, and he's a very polarizing figure in the hockey community. You know, we, we realized that right from the beginning of, you know, people saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't include him in the film. You know, it's going to, uh, you know, all sorts of things. But Akeem's story is really, he's, um, he's a whistleblower, right? He's the one to say, hey, this happened to me. This is happening in hockey. And I think once he came out, then it kind of allowed other players, like Sarah Nurse talks about it. She, When he talked about it, she knew that she was going to get asked questions, but she felt like there was permission then to say, okay, if we're talking about this, I'm going to address it. I'm going to talk about, you know, the things. And, you know, the truth is a lot of those players didn't want to talk about it because it's painful for them. It's not something they look, you know, forward to talking about. Um, they'd much rather, you know, just, you know, focus on, you know, their careers and their sports and, and all of this. But then there became this kind of obligation for other players to come forward. And in the situations like that, sometimes that's what it takes, right? It takes someone who is going to stand up and, and maybe not everyone, um, you know, mm. likes or agrees with or feels like it's saying it the right way. It doesn't matter. It's just breaking the silence is kind of the first step. Yeah, that, that makes absolute sense to me. I'll tell you a funny story. I did OHL play-by-play for seven years, so Akeem's in the league when I'm doing games for Saginaw and Windsor. And some nights I just look and go, well, well, that's the best player on the ice. This is a top 10 draft pick. And another night, a couple weeks later, I might see him and, and I barely notice him. But I don't know what he's going through. Like we do this with athletes. We're going to we'll do it all the time. And, and we very much treat them like commodities. And we think we're, we're cheering for the uniform and we're not understanding what that person. Made. It's still a business. You still got to get results. But he bounced around that OHL a lot. And, and I think probably probably it, it it was tough for him to shake the reputation that he kind of turned it on when he wanted to, but we don't know all the things he was going through then. And now we do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he talks about it a lot, like the, uh, the, the mental side of it, right. The mental pressure that he felt under and, and the certain, you know, depression. So it, it's, it's tricky. You know, I think you're exactly right. We We don't know what people are going through and we kind of, um, as athletes, we just expect them to perform and, and get results. And, and so this, I think, is a little bit, uh, you know, what I was trying to do is just to mm. get into the mindset of a lot of these players and things that they might have been going through uh, and struggling with. And, and quite frankly, you know, we're told not really to talk about. Last thing for you. Do you think the bigger cities, um, the Torontos, um, are easier places for like we had with Soroya Tinker on the show last week. She's just so brilliant. Like she should be the freaking prime minister uh, two years from now, not not 20 years from now. Um, Wayne Simmons is obviously a real crowd favorite with with the Maple Leafs. Do you still think small towns, Hubert, have this? It's really difficult. Like I like I was cringing watching the goalie, obviously, uh, out east. Um, and the dad advocating for him, um, dealing with the, the the chronic abuse. These aren't just a dirty look or a glance or an eye roll. It's mm-hmm. it's that word. It, I, I I cannot believe that 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 would be. And yet, in the GTHL and in in other places, we still have these controversies and we still have these problems. Yeah, it's it's. I think what was incredible is as I was making the documentary, it became even more present, right? Because people would then start sending stuff to me like, oh, it happened this weekend. Oh, it yeah. happened. 
And we're talking about like this is, you know, this is happening now, like right now this is happening. Um, and I think the one thing is uh, before I used to think, oh, it would only it happened because I don't know, it was on the East Coast, it was PEI or it happened in Quebec. And but I think I'm starting to realize in all the stories that it, it's, it's actually pretty universal. It's it's really happening everywhere. Um, and I think what it is, is the spaces like, mm. for example, Soroya plays for the Toronto Six. I don't know if you've ever been to a game, but that's like an inclusive environment, right? Like they've set up as an organization, like, hey, like this is a space where um, you are welcome. And, you know, like you can just the whole vibe mm. of it is much different than a lot of the other games we went to. But unfortunately, in a lot of these um you know, uh, you know, for other games and stuff we went to, that there there wasn't that there wasn't that same energy, and and again that same uh, mindset that came from the top down, from the people who are in positions, uh, organizers of leagues and, and these things, and and I think that's why you'll continue to see problems, right? If if you, if no one addresses it, or there's a, generally an indifference, and you know, some parents that I've talked to even over the past year. Um, they kind of, uh, parents who are white, they kind of, you know, to me had an indifference, like, oh, you know, that's just like this kind of boys will be boys kind of that I thought was really, um, you know, that's really at the heart of the problem. Right? Yeah, I, I think it's upon all of us. It really is to shut that stuff down as quickly as we can. And it's 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 confrontational. It's you're going to you're going to cringe. It's uncomfortable, but you have to do it because there's a passive acceptance. If you don't, there just is. You're you're exactly right, and it, and that's mm. who it's on. You know, I was talking about this last night. It's on the allies who are in those areas to step forward. Uh, hey, your executive producer broke the record last night. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's great, great timing. I think it happened about five hours ago, uh, based on the timing of the game. But there you have it. Yeah, he did it. LeBron James uh, and Maverick Carter, obviously, executive produced uh, Black Ice. I urge everybody to go see it. It's on Crave right now. It's a real triumph, Hubert. Thanks so much. I, I hope we get to connect in person, but I really appreciate you coming on with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You got it. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Gord Perks yesterday at City Council brought in the, um, uh, obviously, Eileen Davila and I think a really important, you know, uh, database that she brought to the idea of being homeless and what it adds or rather takes away from it adds to your risk in terms of not living a long life and what it takes away from your potential life expectancy. Here's Toronto's uh, medical officer of health. It is not about a particular temperature. We know for a fact that uh, being homeless and underhoused is just bad for your health. Starting off the very fact that we see as we collect uh, death uh, data on homeless individuals, that your life expectancy is significantly shortened if you are homeless in this city. And it's in the range of about 30 years. The life expectancy is about 30 years shorter than the, that for the general population. So, to say nothing of all the other um, thank you. challenges. Gord Perks joins us right now in Toronto today, City Councilor for Ward 4, Parkdale High Park. Thanks very much for making the time. That was that was jarring. I mean, you, you, you could see it. You could expect it. It makes perfect sense, that math does, Gord. But it's, it's difficult to hear. It is difficult to hear. And, uh, you know, we've spent a lot of time on the Board of Health looking at this issue. We've heard from emergency room doctors who are, you know, talking about amputating limbs from the cold. Mm -hmm. 
we we have there's a homeless memorial near city hall every every week names are added to that list this is just awful are we coming closer to finding some sort of solution it's in the headlines people seem to be compassionate about it I get it. Everything does have a cost. It has a material cost. It has a human resources cost as well. Um, will we, By the time the budget process is finished, can we find a balancing act that at least gets people on the right track and at least makes sure people aren't dying in cold weather? Well, that's the hope. That's what we're fighting for. I, I will have to tell you, it is a struggle at City Hall. We have to fight for every penny. Uh, the mayor and many members of council uh, for years have made keeping taxes low, the number one priority, if you will. And it's meant that we're way behind on providing warm spaces, shelter beds and and housing, which is where we really want to get people in the city of Toronto. Yeah. And and there's those there's kind of hurdles to climb over, too. I'm sure there's people that are disenfranchised that are experiencing homelessness that Gord, if you and I, um, you know, basically walk them like by the hand into an apartment setting, they're not ready for that yet. Some are, some wouldn't be because of either uh, addiction or lack of resources or fun. They're not going to be able to manage um, a scenario where they're in property, but we have to find a baseline to, to at least start them on that process. You put your finger on it. It it takes, you know, there are life skills that you need and, uh, you know, as you said, a baseline to be able to manage a household. That's why one of the things we've been telling the province for a while is, listen, we're building housing. You have responsibility for mental health. Can you start funding what we call support workers? Someone who makes sure that you're buying groceries and that you know how to cook a meal. Someone who makes sure that uh, you've got ID. Someone who makes sure you, you pay your rent on time and, and gets you into that rhythm. Because everything the data sh- that, that Dr. Davila was talking about shows is if you want to make someone healthier, get them a home. Gord Perks is our guest on Toronto Today. Um, you asked about the costs, the extra cost of policing and, uh, and you know, just doing some quick uh, calculator punching. $1.7 million was deemed the monthly um, cost for 80 extra police officers. Now, that's overtime pay. That's that's a lot of extraneous costs as well. But that comes out to 21250 a month per officer. So it, it it jars me. What's what's understood about that amount? What's misunderstood about that that amount? That just that seems like a heavy financial price to pay. And we're not 100 percent sure that it's even needed. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's important both that people are safe and feel safe in public spaces on the TTC and libraries and so on. That's that's important. What our job as elected officials to, is is to make sure that we are finding the most cost effective and the way to deal with it that has the best outcomes. And my question is, are police officers? the most cost effective and do they get the best outcomes probably not it might well be that having public health nurses and and social workers who can help people you know figure get oriented make them aware look there's a drop-in program where you can get a meal have you got id so that you can get uh, an ontario works check and and start to pay rent 
all, that may be a better investment of money. And, and the police may actually feel that same way as well. I mean, they, look, they serve such an important job. There's two things I think of, Gord. One is that many of the violent incidents we've heard about on the TTC or, or just on our streets, they're almost universally in the last three weeks, there's been an arrest made about a day or two later. Very few crimes have been unsolved so far. I think about the, the two people that fell into the ice and were skating in the day. And police went into the ice and rescued them. It's a difficult job, but they know that it's theirs to do. And we're lucky that somebody that either came quickly or they were nearby. So there is that important job. But to your point, what what necessarily will it reduce or minimize on the TTC? I don't know how we're going to find sort of data to, to bear that out over over the next year or so. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of this stuff is, you know, it's not hard data like uh, mm-hmm. Uh, having a city employee strike up a relationship with someone who lost their home a few weeks ago, you know, the, how do you make that a data point, right? But that relationship could be the thing that gets the person into treatment or into housing uh, and saves a life. But, you know, if you talk to police officers, you know, and I, I do, they're, they 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 want to be able to do the right thing, but they've got too many demands on them. Like they're, they're, they're mm-hmm. being sent to overdose calls. No, no, that's not their job. That should be a paramedic. I, got, I, I absolutely. I got about 45 seconds. I want to ask you about Cafe Tio. Um, uh, have we found a good, happy medium here? Because um, the restaurants wanted to stay open. The patios wanted to exist. I think people like them. But but as well, they didn't want to pay through the nose for them right away. Restaurant, The restaurant industry and the bar industry has really, really suffered. Do we have a compromise here that, that moves the ball forward? We have a compromise. I'm, I've, it's unfortunately it's one of those compromises where everyone comes away a little bit unhappy. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to still ask for some money. And we're going to change some of the phasing, but uh, you know, it's in a city that's struggling to pay for things. It, like we were just talking about with shelter space. Eventually, that we're going to need restaurants to pay fees for these. Yeah. Yeah. And and we, there's obviously other revenue sources that uh, that are going to get considered over the next few months after this budget um, gets filed. Gord, I'm tight for time, but I want to have you on again very soon. Thanks so much for uh, coming on this morning. Thanks, Greg. Have a good one. Gord Perks joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. All right. He's walking in like he's about to perform a big surgery, but it's a lot less significant than that. He's just going <laughs> to chat with me about the future of our lives with healthcare in our country. He's making the rounds in Toronto today. He is Dr. Quadro Kiramanting. You made it. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. This is quite the experience, my friend. I feel like we've met before, but it's one of those Zoom. Have you done so many Zoom things and you're like, I've done that to three or four people in the last two years where I'm like, somebody would be like, I don't think we've met. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we have. And they're like, no, we've Zoomed five or six times. So that's the difference, right? Absolutely. Actually, I, I ran into a, a, a colleague that I just interacted with Zoom and I did not realize they're like six foot six. You know what I mean? Like it's just, when you're on Zoom, you have no idea, but... Yeah, it's it's a great to. Am to I see as you flesh. imagined? Oh, of course, beautiful. Oh gosh, thanks. Fresh, full of energy. Yeah, yeah. No, this is all. This is wonderful. You're gonna make me blush before my uh, morning bowl of cereal. <laughs> um, let's. Let, I, I, so I watched you on a panel the other night. You, you recorded that, obviously. Um, and then yesterday we have conversations about. I, I'm not stuck on the amount of health care. Um, the dollars probably for the average person just just blend together. And you're thinking, well, it's something it's a little more than the federal government offered. The questions will be because you're on the front lines. Do you see a system right now that needs 
alteration more than funding. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely a complicated issue. But right now, I don't see us approaching the healthcare crisis the same way that we've done traditionally. And it's, I don't think that's the answer. I don't think we're, we've been at this for decades. If you look at the headlines 20 years ago, emerge wait times of you know 18 hours and so forth, that hasn't changed. And to expect that to change just with more money, I, I don't... I don't, I don't see that as a solution. I think we need to have a plan in order. This is what I want to see. I want to see some accountability. I want to see some creativity. I want to see some innovative solutions. And I've yet to hear that at scale. I've heard things in, in little bits, in little areas and, you know, uh, organizations that are, that are looking at ways to be more creative and, and uh, creating more healthcare solutions. But this... I don't think the answer is simply just more money. I think we're kind of blessed and cursed being north of the United States because we look south of the border. We hear lots of horror stories of, of people, you know, $250,000 in debt because their eight-year-old um, has leukemia. It's horrible. There's some horrible stories of people without insurance coverage, Dr. K. But but I think that gave us a unusual amount of sort of um, cockiness or smugness by going, well, we're not them. Mm. When I look at all these other European countries and countries in the Far East too, that have somehow figured out how to balance, not letting people like that fall through the cracks, not letting people take on this incredible debt and still giving people choice. When you and I are, um, you know, a lot less good looking than we are now. And, uh, and when we're 80 years old and we want a hip surgery, it, it, we don't want to be waiting a year for it. And we worry that we will be because our parents are right now. Honestly, this this is my concern is that there needs to be solutions yesterday. Like because of multiple reasons, the, the amount of burnout, people leaving the profession, the, the the pandemic, wait times are insane. Yeah. For elective surgery. And people might say, Oh, it's elective, but remember when you're sixty five, you're seventy you only have so many prime time years. You're living left. in the now. Yeah. Yeah. And when you got to wait three years to get your hip replaced or your, or your knee, that's unacceptable. And then people, I don't know if people realize too, I've had colleagues approach me talking about their, like as cancer surgeons, they see somebody that they, they see in clinic and say, you know, we're going to book you for treatment and, and resect or cut out that, that cancer. But because of the prolonged wait times, now that sur- that cancer is too far gone, and they can't offer surgery anymore. It's no longer curative. Like th- there's stories like that out there. So to me, there needs to be a there needs to be some urgency here. There needs to be some hustle and to try and figure this out. I wish healthcare wasn't so political, but you know it is, and I know it is. And it wasn't just in the last three years. It felt like it got really political the last three years. Who does this? Who approves of this? Who tells people what to do? Um, Can we, if we got to more choice, if we got to more independence, if we got to more um, of a hybrid option, could we take some of the politics out of it? It doesn't seem to be so political in all these other countries besides Canada and the U.S. You know, I I think it when it comes to the urgency, I'm hoping that we can get rid of the ideology. Like, I I think we need to think about what our core values are in terms of Canadian healthcare, which is, you know equitable, accessible care for our our citizens? And how do we deliver it in a way that will achieve that? And I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers, but 
is there an element of privatization that could help this out? I think so. You know, as long as we have the safeguards to to avoid situations that we see in the states. For example, my my humble opinion is if you're if you're a surgeon that that is doing uh, some element of private private uh, care, you can't exclusively do that. You got to be mm-hmm. X percentage of time in private max, so that we don't see a, uh, a talent drain and see more of our best surgeons and most talented surgeons going just to, exclusively to the private sector. Do we continue to, le- to leverage the private, par- uh, private, um, public private partnerships where we see models where, you know, whether it's a place that does hernia repairs that are extremely efficient at, at getting them through, do we leverage that now? I'm, for me, if, the, the, uh, if that's available, we got to do something. With with the amount of wait times, the amount of people that are that are that are hurting, we got we got to do something. So I think there's some solutions there. As long as we think about the principles, as long as we create the the safeguards, you know, I'd be a, a proponent of moving forward in, in that fashion. Yeah, I think we can do it. It's just it's got to you know we got to drown out the yelling um, by which doesn't mean getting louder than the yelling, but by having rational, nuanced conversations, data-driven, data-driven mm-hmm. stuff. That's, that's, I, I started following you and buying into a lot of what you were selling about how practical we could be during the pandemic because you were looking at the data. You were looking at the numbers. You were looking at who this was much more of a significant risk to than others. Yeah, and it's, I'm glad you brought that up, Greg, because like I do think politics hurts healthcare, for sure. We saw it clearly in the pandemic. Yeah. Because if we made it about the data, like I, I, you know, I'm in Toronto today doing talks on on racism in healthcare, and and it was clear that certain groups, certain demographics were at higher highest risk. And you you might ask yourself why capture that data, why focus on that? It's because you could intervene, you could you could uh, you could uh, offer therapeutics treatments in the communities that are at highest that are in highest need. And, and, yeah. and so really when it comes to the data or when it comes to um, healthcare, we need to, it needs to be data driven. Yeah. You're in town talking about racism and healthcare. And that's an obvious question. It's black history month. Tell me some of the obstacles that were there when you started that are gone. Tell me some of the obstacles that you still see with colleagues either getting into the medical field or even veterans like yourself. What do we need to fix still? But what's gotten better? I'm curious about that part first. Yeah, the, 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 what's gotten better is the awareness. Like I, I really think that part is giving me hope. To be honest with you, I think people are appreciating why diversity matters. Why it's important to have a diverse set of physicians, nurses, administrators to improve and advocate for patients. I, I really think people see the value. I you know, it took, in my opinion, George Floyd to really push the the narrative and 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 change the tide. How did it change it? People were just like people that had a platform, say similar to myself, or or just any person of color, now became more vocal and more mm-hmm. like enough was enough, enough of being treated like an animal, putting this on TV, social media, and seeing how our people are treated 
it, it was enough. It, and you could, and part of that tension too, like, you know, a lot of people, uh, like white people were were behind this too. They they, saw, they they felt it. We were all in the pandemic. We were locked down for a bit, yeah. and I think emotions were high in general. But there was more empathy in, in that in terms of that lens, and 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 that it really changed the tide. Like you now, you see a lot of organizations with with you know equity, div, uh, diversity. Uh, inclusion officers, we, we it's just been more of a priority. And within healthcare, a lot of people feel like we're immune to it, like that, you know, you're going in with highly educated professionals thinking that racism isn't a true thing. Maybe it's more of a, an issue in the States, but I could, the stuff I've experienced as a, as a black physician or medical student resident, the what you see, how like how how patients are treated based on the color of their skin. When we look at the data, even on outcomes based on your color of your skin, when you look at access to care, especially in the indigenous population, where you're, yeah, like clean water, antibiotics. Like I, I had a Mike Curlew on the show. He's a physician out of Ottawa, but was working in Sioux Lookout. Number one, it was one of the most enlightening episodes I had, but. He explained to me that in Sioux Lookout, there were segregated hospitals up to the late 80s. And he's been in situations treating indigenous uh, ind- indigenous uh, patients where he's running out of medication. So whites-only hospitals, indigenous-only hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. Like in our lifetime. 30 and, years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and a lot of people... Uh, were have been treated like just straight up poorly in a, in our own country. When you he he was explaining to me a scenario where they're running out of not only antibiotics but say sedation. So somebody that is needing to be on a ventilator for transport, but they run out of sedative medication, so they got to paralyze without any set sedation. Like you're awake but paralyzed. Like this is in our own country. This is happening. It's it's like yes we. Are, we've done a better job at, at acknowledging it. Yes, we're doing, we're moving in the direct, right direction, but we still have a lot of work to do. I even though during the pandemic, like I, it, it's not to, uh, you know, I'm well aware that the audience, you can tell by the numbers, you can tell by w- polls or whatever that you know people just wanted to move forward and they wanted to move forward last spring, and they wanted to judge their own risk. And so it's not to relitigate the pandemic, but what I watched with you. Um, I'd consider you an ally. There'd be other, um, you know, doctors of, of color I'd consider allies. And I'm like, they seem to get it differently from um, other white doctors, other white activists, uh, white people in the media. They seem to get it worse. And, and you guys have often had to turn the other cheek, take the high road, stiff upper lip. And it's easy to get into, it's easy to get into a mud wrestling battle, but then you're just, you're just one of the pigs in the pen, mud wrestling. How did? How do you? Do you have to count to ten to stay above it all? Sometimes, I guess, is what I'm asking because it's. I I've got sucked in a couple times. I don't I don't love that I have not not recently, but in those early, those early first 12, 18 months, I'd look and go, oh, it's so tempting. There's people that would never admit when they were wrong. There's people that would keep you know forcing things on on uh, that didn't make sense. How did you stay above it? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Greg. First thing I. I I want to say though, it is 
it is a unique experience being a person of color in a public eye or in a leadership position. Like there, traditionally, you're often in a circle where you're the only one and you have different perspectives. And being that isolated or different, you tend to be a target. And this might seem maybe, I don't know if it's a pill that people will have a tough time swallowing, but I think it needs to be said. Like I, I personally feel that, you know, when you are in a position like similar to mine, that you, you tend to be a target. I was just about to say you do. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Um, It's easy. It's really easy to be quiet and not advocate for, for people and things you believe in, but you decided I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say something. Yeah. And I got to thank my, my family, especially my wife, who's, who knew we would get heat for what we were doing. And, and it was just, the stakes were too high. Like, you know, I, my, you know, when I look at my values or our family's values, it's always do the right thing. Speak up for those that can't speak up for themselves. And it's something that I want to instill in our kids and our youth. And when we were seeing how people were, how the, the, the pandemic was being approached and, and the, the, the way people were like certain, the, the amount of fear that was being propagated, we, we just collectively felt we need to do, we need to say something. And, and we knew there would be risk. And that, to be honest with you, I, I try and avoid looking at the comments, but don't get me wrong. When a couple of these comments come across your your feed, like I, I'm ready to drop kick, drop kick the wall. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, you know, but ultimately you ask yourself, what's the ultimate goal? Like on t- getting getting in those Twitter wars, rarely produced anything positive. There's no win. There's no win. In fact, it often could get even you when into, you're right. There's no win. And so, we just had that mindset of we're not going to engage in it. We'll, I mean. Honestly, the, the times I wouldn't look at the, the comments, but occasionally people will send it to you. Like the worst one was when they did some Lego figurine in my family, uh, and during one of the uh, one of the school closures, and uh, just was just mocking my my family. When they brought my fam into it, I was, you know, I did come and say like it's getting too far, people. Like, but ultimately, we, you know, we I, I could say that when we look at this. It, in hindsight, like we were on the right side of history here. We were definitely advocating for those that, that were being hit the hardest. We're, we talked about some of the negative impacts of the restrictions, school closures, advocating for our kids. I, we could hold our heads up high. And as time goes on, I, I really feel like people see this. Yeah, it's something never to apologize for. It's it never to apologize for, and yet at the same time, there's there's also no win in in dunking on the people that were wrong about this. But there'll be more um, resistance. Might be too strong a word. If it ever were to happen again, we'll we'll know what we got right. We'll know what we got wrong, and I think we'll we'll dig in a little deeper and not just go along to get along. I think. I, I hope so. Yeah. Like I really hope so because it we couldn't we can't let this happen again. I got two minutes here, and I want to. Um, a, thank you for coming in, and B, I, I think so much of of you and your influence is, and I hear you talking about, you know, the racism and the bias in in the medical field. People need to see themselves where where they they need to see people that look like them where they want to be. It's never a problem for me growing up. It wasn't, but and I'd make that case for women too. Women need to see women. 
Canadian, you're a big sports fan. You need to see young women tennis players need to see Bianca Andreescu, a freaking Canadian, win the U.S. Open, right? Yeah. They need to see that because then they say, I can do it. You must have younger people in the medical field, and it must make you beam come up to you. And, and, and you know that that's their method message to you is that I see me and you. What does that mean to you when you have those exchanges? Uh, thanks for the question, Greg, because it's 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 something you can't even put into words. Like it's what like I, I I'll try and be brief. But mm -hmm. I, there was a what the aha moment for me was when I walked into an ICU and a, and this black patient looked at me and says, "Are you you know you, you're a doctor?" And I'm like, "Yeah, oh yeah." And he, he was like, "Wow, that's amazing." <laughs> and you know, in some ways, you're like thinking like you know, you're, you're a role model, but at the same time, it's like, why am I the unicorn? You know, why are there yeah. so little, many, so little of us? So, but to answer your question directly, it, we we started a black mentorship program uh, during the pandemic to, to to try and be that role model for so much, so many of our black youth, and it has been so rewarding. It's been th that glimmer in their eye when we get together. The 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 camaraderie when we see one of our like one of our our students mm -hmm. now is getting it going through a set of interviews and it is so meaningful it's 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 it makes it all worthwhile that makes me sore it's got to make it all worthwhile uh solving healthcare is your podcast uh dr k and a book coming later this year yes yes it's uh lessons on the pandemic leadership lessons uh and uh this is a this is something that uh really excited about and i think you guys are gonna really enjoy this okay great thanks for coming to toronto and thanks for visiting us in studio we love we love guests oh my god thanks so much greg it was wonderful uh awesome dr aquato kiramanting our guest canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime history and the paranormal since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.